Okay, Acts chapter 18 is where we'll start at. Glad to have everybody out. Have some others joining us as, as time goes by. But anyway, uh, we're going to start uh, starting right at 10 o'clock and then it'll just everybody filtering in. Right? I don't know. I don't like teaching empty chairs, so I always start late. Like someone else will show up. Come on, we need more people. But anyway, uh, Acts chapter 18, while you're finding your place, we'll go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will get into our study this morning. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your many blessings. Thank you for all that you do for us and for loving us, for taking care of us, Lord. We thank you for the day that you've given us, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to, to gather together. We thank you so much for your word, and we just ask you, Lord, that you'd be with, it, uh, be with us today as we... Uh, as we get into your word and as we read and as we study and as we uh, think about these things, Lord, I just pray that you would uh, grow our understanding, Lord, to help us, Lord, to be encouraged in our walk with you, Lord, help us to draw closer to you, Lord. Be with those who are still on their way out today, be with those who are, are still working or who are working or traveling and unable to be with us, Lord, just that you'd watch over them. And Lord, we just thank you for being so good to us and thank you for loving us, Lord. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Acts chapter number 18, and what we have been looking at, we're watching, uh, not watching, we are uh, discussing uh, Paul's second missionary journey, and uh, he went back through the regions of Galatia, where he went on his first missionary journey, checked things out, everything was going well, and the Lord led him to go on into Europe, and he crossed over and he was into uh, Greece. He started out in the northern portion of Greece, up in Philippi, and came on around through uh, Thessalonica and down through Berea, and then last last two weeks he was in Athens, and so what typically was his his point where he had to move forward was whenever uh, they came against him violently, whenever they ran him out of the city, that was when it was time for him to to move forward, and so he had left Berea and Thessalonica and came down to Athens by himself. He had left his uh, co-workers behind there in Berea and Thessalonica in order to uh, continue the work, to encourage people along, to disciple the the new believers. And uh, they were able to, I guess, fly under the radar a little bit more. Uh, as long as Paul was there, Paul was somewhat of a firebrand. He was the one that uh, was always the target whenever, um, whenever any kind of persecution would break out because it seems like he was the the loudest, he was the most prominent, he was the most zealous, and Timothy and Silas and some of the others could uh, just stay and work amongst the, the church folks and not stir up as much controversy, it seems like. And uh, anyway, so he left them behind. He came down to Athens, and as he was touring Athens, Athens was the academic center. Athens was the place where there was philosophers and scientists and mathematicians and paganism. And uh, as Paul went around Athens, he saw the the city wholly given to idolatry, it says. And everywhere he looked, there were idols, there was uh, altars, there was temples and all of these things. And so he began to sit down and reason with the people of Athens. He began talking with them, and, and as he was doing this, it began to cause a stir throughout the city of Athens. Now, remember, he was pretty much by himself while he was here. He was waiting on the others to come along and be with him, but he couldn't remain silent, and he just started uh, reasoning with the people because we said uh, our faith is reasonable, right? Mm -hmm. 
started reasoning with the people. He started opening the scriptures. Whenever he was thrust out of the synagogue, he still was meeting with the the believers and with the curious uh, Greeks and different ones. And uh, as this was going about, uh, they decided we need to bring Paul and have him evaluated by our civic leaders. We need to bring him here and hear him out, what he has to say uh, to whether we uh, continue to allow him to remain here, whether we continue to listen to him, or whether we have to silence him or possibly even punish him. And so whenever he is brought before the leaders on Mars Hill, he begins to uh, he begins basically to preach the gospel to them. He starts with uh, coming to them based on something that they had acknowledged they didn't know. That he said, I observed that you have a, an idol, an altar to the unknown God. And so they were acknowledging there was something they didn't know in this academic center where they thought they knew everything, right? Mm-hmm. Where they prided themselves in all of their advances and how sophisticated they were. He says, there's something you don't know and let me tell you about him. And so he preached the gospel there. And whenever he got to the resurrection of Christ, there were a few people who were curious, but most of them were too intellectual. Most of them were too sophisticated to give any kind of credence to the, the idea of a resurrection from the dead. Now, just as a side note, there's something I didn't bring up last week, is the fact that they were so surrounded by false gods and idols and by all the Greek pantheon, all these different gods that they served and the knowledge of all the Roman gods and different things, the idea of a resurrection was still a foreign concept to them, okay? If you listen to a lot of the, the, the people today who are skeptical, a lot of the academics of today, they try to say that Christianity is just a warmed-over religion, that it is just one of the many thousands of religions that is reusing some of the same things that you find in all these other religions, including the idea of a resurrection, But whenever Paul preached the resurrection, some of the most idolatrous people, some of the people who were most versed in the false gods, saw the resurrection as being novel, as being something new, as being something different that they wouldn't even um, consider, right? So that's just a little bit of a side note in in this idea about the resurrection and about how uh, important it is in our faith. It is the, the proof, if you will, of our faith. Uh, no other religion has a God that resurrected, right? They don't have the empty tomb. And so the empty tomb is one of our biggest proofs. But anyway, getting back on track with this, uh, Paul, by and large, was unsuccessful in Athens. We don't find any evidence that there was ever a church established, that there was any great number of people converted. And from all of that, we can apply that to... Uh, the world which we live today, where we glory in science and technology and knowledge and our academics and our intellectualism and our um, advances as a society. And people say, we no longer need God. It's a superstition. It's something that was for weaker minds and less advanced people and whatnot. Essentially, we're running into a lot the same thing as what they were back then. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so one of the things that Satan will do to try to uh, build a hindrance, build a wall between people and the gospel is to make them proud, make them arrogant, 
in their own knowledge and their own abilities. Even Satan at the beginning said, I will be as God, right? Whenever he came to Adam and Eve, what was the temptation whenever he spoke to Eve about eating the tree? Knowledge. You'll be like God, right? God knows that in the day that you eat thereof, then you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil, right? And Satan uses this idea of knowledge, of uh, pseudo-knowledge, right? To blind the eyes and the hearts of men. And so men glory in this idea of our all of our scientific theories and discoveries and all of these uh, philosophies and everything that they have compounded over the years, and they try to use these things to rule out God. Uh, the Bible says, ever learning but never able to come to the knowledge of Christ. And that's where man is now. And so this is what we saw in Athens. But now Paul leaves Athens. He's still by himself. His, the rest of his entourage has not, enjoy, has not joined him in Athens, and he's going to move on. Uh, essentially, he, even though Athens is such a huge place, there's so many people there, uh, he knows when it's time to uh, close the door and move on, okay? Maybe it was God that closed the door, maybe whatever. It seems to me, okay, and I'm, uh, I might be I may be jumping to conclusions here. It seems to me at this point in time, Paul was very discouraged, okay? Y'all think Paul ever got discouraged? Okay, Paul was very discouraged, I believe, as he left this. And we'll see as we come into Corinth some of the reasons why I believe he was discouraged. Okay? So, Acts chapter number 18, let's read. Uh, I'll read the first 11 verses. We'll see how far we get. It says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, lately come from Italy, with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought for their occupation, uh, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, uh, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed him, excuse me, when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean from henceforth. I will go into the Gentiles. And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshiped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by vision, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not, hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And so as we see in this passage of Scripture, he, he moves on down to the region of Corinth. Um, whenever we look at some of the, the names of places here, it might confuse us a little bit. We're talking all about uh, the country of Greece, okay? This is the region that it was. The Greek Empire had fallen to the Romans. The Romans had taken over. The Romans still gave the Greeks a good bit of, uh, a good bit of latitude, a lot of space. Uh, we talked about that specifically in... Um, 
Uh, which which place was it? <clears throat> I think it was Athens. Yeah, yes, it was Athens. And so, uh, whenever it talks about Macedonia, the region of Macedonia, that's the northern part of Greece. This is where Philippi, Thessalonica, uh, and Borea was at. And then whenever it talks about the region of Achaia, that's the southern part. This is where Corinth was. Okay, Corinth and maybe even Athens. And so anyway, um, as Paul made his way, he came into town. He was by himself. And what was the first thing that Paul did whenever he came to town? Are you sure? Now, we know in the past his manner was to come and go immediately to the synagogue, right? But it says, after these things, Paul departed from Athens, came to Corinth, and found a certain Jew named Aquila. Born in Pontius, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. First thing that Paul did whenever he came to Corinth is he looked for somebody. Paul needed a friend. He needed encouragement. And whenever he came to Priscilla and Aquila, there was three different things about Aquila and Priscilla that endeared them to Paul, that enabled this relationship that he had with them. They become a, a huge encouragement to him. Uh, they are used by God mightily, uh, not just in Paul's ministry, but in the in and of their own, okay? But there's three things that endeared them to Paul. One thing is uh, ethnicity. They were Jews. They were of the same, same people group. They were of the same country. That was something that built a bridge for them to have a relationship, right? Another thing that endeared him to them was they were of the same occupation. They were tent makers. Uh, Paul, though he was a trained rabbi, all the rabbis also had to have an occupation. And so Paul was a tent maker, and whenever uh, funds were getting low, whenever he was needing to make money along the way, he would ply his hand at his trade, and he would be able to earn money to keep him and his co-workers uh, going, right? And so he said, okay, they're Jews, they're tent makers, but also their religion. Okay, not just their occupation and their uh, ethnicity, but also their religion endeared them to one another. Okay, and it says that they feared God. We don't know from what we read here if Aquila and Priscilla were already Christians. Okay, some people lean toward yes, some people lean toward no. I lean toward no because where did they just come from? Yeah, they just came from Italy, they just came from Rome, they were expelled out of Rome. And so that was still beyond where Paul had made it. Remember, Paul was the pioneer missionary. He was the one that was leading the charge, pressing westward with the gospel, right? And they were coming from Rome. Now, they were much more well-traveled than we usually think back then. So these were Jews. They were living in Rome. People traveled back and forth and all around. So it's possible they've heard the gospel. It's possible that they believed. But it's also possible that they were open to listening to Paul. Paul shared the gospel with them, and they got saved. Okay, But anyway, uh, Paul is drawn to these people. They have this connection with one another. They begin to uh, dwell together. He's staying with them. He is working together with them. And in his spare time, and probably while he's working, I'm, I'm assuming as he's sewing on tents, as he's weaving cloths and fabrics and all these different things, He's talking to people. He's telling about where he's been, about what he's done, about what he knows about Jesus. And he's preaching the gospel to people. 
whenever he's not working, he's going to the synagogue. We find out later he's going to the synagogue and he's uh, there discussing and uh, reasoning with them out of the scriptures, talking to them about the Lord. Right. And so he's taking these opportunities. But if you look at this compared to what he does in other places, it seems like he is a little bit restrained. Do y'all notice that? It seems as if he's a little bit restrained because everywhere else, it's like he comes to the city, he jumps in headfirst, and he goes about, for the sake of a cliche, like a bull in a china shop. He's just there and stirring everything up. But whenever he comes into Corinth, he's more subdued. He's more quiet. He's he's working with his hands. He's going and he's quietly speaking to the folks in the synagogue. And he's reasoning with the Jews, but not saying anything too inflammatory, not getting too worked up, okay? And that's verse 4. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. So that gives us the idea that this went on for a time. It wasn't just that he went on for a couple Sabbaths. It was every Sabbath. So that makes me think that it was several weeks, at least. But then things change in verse number five. Right? In verse number five, it says, And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean from henceforth. I go to the Gentiles. Something changed in verse number five, right? What changed? Okay, his friends came, right? Why would that create a change in Paul? So yeah, he had Aquila and Priscilla, but here's the thing. If you look at where he just came from and what he's just been through, right? He's been thrown out of Berea. He's been thrown out of Thessalonica. He was beaten in Philippi. He left of his own accord, but he was beaten in Philippi. Okay? He's been through a series of emotional and trying and difficult circumstances. Now he's separated from his co-laborers and his best friends. Okay? And he is wondering, he is questioning, how long before I meet again? Is the things that I've already done, are they in vain? Will the people remain? Is the churches going to pan out in Thessalonica and in Berea? What kind of news is Timothy and Silas going to bring whenever they come to me? Right? Because he left these churches in turmoil. He left them extremely young. He left them with just a foundation. He left them whenever there was persecution and all these things. He had to be snuck out of the cities, right? And so as he came to Athens, people didn't want to listen. They mocked him. They ridiculed him. And by and large, he was a failure in Athens. Right? And so he comes dragging into Corinth. Relationships are sometimes can be a lot more uplifting and mm-hmm. 
So I, I can imagine that as Paul was dragging into Corinth, he was low. He was beat low. Apparently, finances were bad because he had to go to work, right? And so anyway, he came into the town. He He's looking for someone, and maybe that's how he meets Aquila and Priscilla originally. He's like, okay, I have no money to keep going. I'm going to have to find some way to support myself. I'm going to go, and I'm going to find someone who makes tents. Because I make tents. And I want to see if they have any extra work laying around. And he comes and he finds, oh, they're Jews. This could be good. This could be bad. It depends on their take on Christ. And he begins talking with them and he begins discussing these things. And they say, yeah, we've got work. And they put him to work. and Right? And so that would be a little bit encouraging. But he's going along and in the back of his mind, he's still thinking, uh, I failed in Athens. The people up in... Thessalonica and Berea, this this is probably going to bl- blow over. Nothing's going to become of it, right? He's thinking, you know, Paul and Silas, or not Paul and Silas, Timothy and Silas, who knows, they'll eventually be here, but hopefully they don't get beat. Hopefully they're not in prison. They're taking a long time. Maybe they quit. I don't know. You know the kind of crazy things that come in your mind whenever you're in these times where you're low, and when you're in these times whenever you're struggling along, whenever you're in these times of uncertainty, and separation and whatnot. These kind of thoughts come into your mind. And so all of the negativity would have been flooding over him. But then whenever we get to verse number five, Silas and Timothy come from Macedonia and there is a huge change that takes place. They come and they tell Paul, you wouldn't believe the things that's going on up in Thessalonica and Berea. People are being saved. Lives are being changed. People are loving the Lord, growing in the Lord, serving the Lord. All of these things are going so well, Paul, and he is refreshed in his spirit. He's like, something's actually going well here. This is actually going good for me. And I'm seeing this happen, and he is encouraged by this, right? Not only that, but there is something else that's not mentioned here. Whenever we come to verse number five, he commits himself wholly, completely to the ministry. Whenever it says that he was pressed in the spirit, this means that he was pushed to uh, a place of zeal. He was pushed in this place to where he uh, gave himself completely over to ministry. Uh, he quit making tents. Okay? And we find out if we, we start cross-referencing and different things in Paul's letter to the Corinthians and also in his letter to the Philippians that the church that was in Philippi sent to his need time and again. And so as Timothy and Silas were coming, the Philippian church had sent apparently a love offering of some sort down and they brought it along and they said, okay, here we have the financial support that we need to continue ministering. And so he had friends, he had encouraging news, he had backup, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're a, you're a little bit more apt to be controversial maybe or to push the envelope a little bit if you've got people on your side. Than if you're very outnumbered. And then he was also to the place where he was able to fully give himself to the ministry rather than being uh, constrained to uh, keeping up with the tent making. Okay, so all these things came about and he began to preach boldly, not just, you know, alleging from the scriptures, not just reasoning out of the scriptures, but telling them 
point blank, the Jesus that I'm telling you about, he's the fulfillment of these prophecies. He's the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the only way of salvation. And unless you turn from your dead religion of Judaism and turn to Christ alone, there is no forgiveness for you. And that offended them. They got mad. They began to blaspheme and all these different things. And Paul says, find them. If you don't want to listen, if you're going to blaspheme God and you're going to reject his word that I clearly showed you, then I'll leave you to it. And I'm going to go to the Gentiles because they want to hear. And so he turns at this time and goes to the Gentiles. And it's not that his spirit was fully healed, that he was no longer discouraged or anything. Because we come down to verse number nine. Imagine all the things that Paul's been to been through. He's used to his time in the city's ending after he gets beat. Yeah. Or there's an attempted murder or attempted imprisonment, right? Mm-hmm. And so he's constantly still in fear for his life. But in verse number nine, it says, Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid. Now, okay, I've went over this before. Anytime the Lord or an angel or someone comes to man and says, Be not afraid, what does that tell us? They were afraid. If he wasn't afraid, the Lord wouldn't have said this to him. It's not going to be okay. I showed Peter and says, don't be afraid. He's like, I wasn't. <laughs> right? I was just making sure. No, God comes to him and he says, be not afraid because Peter, excuse me, because Paul was afraid. Sometimes we lift these guys up to being super spiritual. They never get afraid. They never get discouraged. They never have a hard time. They never question God. Their faith never gets weak. But that's not the case. These... These men, such as Paul, were men. They experienced the very same things as what we do. And these things that we go through are part of God's refining process. As as we go through these different situations in our life, they are causing us to depend on God uh, more fully. And God is uh, showing himself to us through these situations. And he is proving himself to us through these situations to build our faith and to increase us. Okay? And it doesn't mean that we're ever going to fully get it. But it is a process that we're going through. And Paul, just the same, he got lonely, he got afraid, he got discouraged, uh, he questioned things, he doubted. But God came to him and he says, don't be afraid. And why is it that he says not to be afraid? What defense did he have against the fear? In verse number 10, he says, I am with thee. That's something that we need to never forget. We always need to remember, Jesus says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. No matter how lonely we feel, no matter how much we feel that God is far away as if he's abandoned us, Satan will lie to us. He will tell us those things. But the truth is, he will. if you are a child of God, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is with you. He knows the things that you're going through. He knows the thoughts that are in your mind. He knows the fears that's in your heart. He knows the concerns and the doubts. He's not offended by those, by the way. Right. We can be honest with God. He knows all these things. And he says, don't be afraid. I am with you. He says, no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. Mm-hmm. This is what Paul was afraid of. They're going to hurt me again. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter how spiritual he was. He does not like being pelted with rocks. Right? right? He does not like being in prison. He doesn't like being in the stocks. He doesn't like being beat with whips. He's a man. And God says, no man is going to settle thee to hurt thee. That's not a blanket statement that it's never going to happen again. He says, while you're in Corinth, it won't happen. Yeah. 
Okay, Paul will eventually be set up one for her. He will eventually give his life for the cause of Christ. But God is saying, it's not that time yet. Right. As a matter of fact, he says, for I have much people in this city. Now, let me be honest with you. Generally, whenever I've read this statement, I think of it as, okay, God has many believers in that city. Is that how you read that? Mm-hmm. Oh, there's all these believers in this city, and so they are going to come to your defense. I've got lots of people here, and so this great number is going to stave off those that would attack you. That's not what this is saying. We're not depending on our numbers. We're not depending on how many people that we have that believe like us to defend us from the government or from the rulers or from whoever. What God is saying here is the harvest is plenty. He's saying, I have so many people for you to reach in this city, and they can't hurt you. They can't run you out of here until your job is finished. This is what he's telling them. He's saying, you have a purpose. You are here for a time, and they can't harm you until what I have for you is done. Okay. Whenever we come to the realization God is with us, he has a plan for us, He has a purpose for us, and as long as we are in his will and doing what he would have us to do, he will work his will, he will work his purpose in us until he is finished with that will and that purpose, right? Mm -hmm. Satan can't touch us. This world can do nothing to us until God allows it. It doesn't mean that it can never happen. It doesn't mean that we're never going to get, you know, Paul was arrested, he was sent to Rome, he was eventually executed, right? It doesn't mean that's not going to happen, but it's showing that God is in control. And so he says, Paul, as long as you are living for me, as long as you are faithful to me, as long as you are serving me, they can't harm you unless I allow them. And I'm not going to allow them as long as I still have something for you to do here. That should be comforting, right? God is in control. God is in charge. There is a song, nothing can touch me unless it passes through his hands, right? And so this is a a great reassurance, a great comfort for us as believers in this passage. And so God says, I have much people in this city. And so the city that we're talking about, we're talking about Corinth. Paul hasn't been here all that long. Yes, he has converts. Yes, he has believers. But it's not that there is a huge multitude there. It's that there is a huge work to be done, that the fields were white unto harvest is what God is telling him. And so Paul is going to labor. He's going to see many people saved. And there is going to be a church that flourishes in Corinth. As a matter of fact, Paul is going to spend more time in Corinth than he has anywhere else so far. He says he stays there a year and a half. Then there's a, an uproar. They try to get him in trouble. And it seems like that's after the year and a half. And then after all that happens, it says he continued a while longer. So he was somewhere between a year and a half, two years in Corinth. He had never stayed anywhere that long before. Yeah. So it's like a turn in his ministry here. But it establishes a church that we have two letters uh, in, the, in our Bible that was addressed to this church, First and Second Corinthians. And they're not just short letters. They are lengthy letters that are written to the church that was at Corinth. Okay? And in this two years that Paul is at Corinth, he also writes several of the other letters that we find in our scriptures. Uh, For instance, he is writing 1 and 2 Thessalonians from Corinth. Okay? He gets word from uh, Timothy, and he gets word from uh, Silas about the things that are going on in Thessalonica. 
And apparently there are some concerns and some questions that arise during that time. It seems as if there were uh, maybe some believers that had passed away during that time. And so they started questioning and saying, okay, what happens? We believed upon Christ and now they're dead. Did they just go in the ground? What happens to them? And so they are asking about those who have died. And so Paul writes the letter of First Thessalonians and the letter of Second Thessalonians while he's there. Uh, another thing that had happened is apparently there was a letter that was written and someone forged Paul's signature, sent it to the, Thessal the Thessalonians, saying basically they missed the rapture. Okay? And they forged his signature and they worried the people at Thessalonica with a false message with uh, heresy, basically. And Paul writes, the uh, writes, I believe, Second Thessalonians to combat that and straighten it out. Okay? So all this is done from... Uh, Thessalonica, or from, excuse me, from Corinth. Uh, there's different ideas on, and I know some of this may not interest you, but I, it helps bring our Bible together. It helps us understand some of the things that are going on during the times that these things are being written. Okay? Uh, there's different ideas, different thoughts on the authorship of Hebrews. Everybody familiar with that? Yeah. I personally believe Paul wrote Hebrews. There's other people who claim otherwise. But there is a lot of evidence that it was possible Paul wrote the book of Hebrews while he was in Corinth. And if you think about it for a minute, what is the theme of the book of Hebrews? Anybody? The theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. You ever heard that before? Is that new to you? Okay, the theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. This book of Hebrews is being written to the Jews that are still holding on to the law, that are still holding on to their traditions and all these things. And Paul is writing to them saying, Jesus is better than the law. He's the fulfillment of the law. All of the law, all of these things point to him. He's better than the angels. He's better than the prophets. He's better than all of these things. We have Hebrews 11, the faith chapter, that even all of the folks that they looked up to, all of the great heroes of uh, their history were heroes of faith, Right? And so if we look at this, if Paul was the one that was authoring it, and if he authored it from Corinth, what did Paul just go through leading up to Corinth? He was constantly being persecuted by the Jews that were rejecting Jesus because they wanted to hold on to Judaism. And Paul ever had a burden for the Jews wanting to see his brother saved. He said if it were possible that he would die so that they could be saved, right? And so he had this burden for them, and so it makes sense to me. I'm not going to say dogmatically. It makes sense to me that during these two years or however long he was at Corinth, could have very well been when he wrote the book of Hebrews, trying to encourage the Jews to believe and the believing Jews to continue in Christ instead of reverting back to Judaism because Jesus is better than all these things, right? So these are things that happened from Corinth. Now I want to look just a little bit about what kind of place that Paul was ministering in. We haven't talked too much about Corinth, have we? Okay? We talked about Athens. Athens was the academic center, right? Mm -hmm. Corinth was a, uh, a center of commerce. They were business. They were where port and where trade and all these different things was coming through. They were located basically on the... one of the main... Uh, one of the main stops in commerce from the east to the west, okay? Everything that was going to Rome passed through Corinth, okay? 
And so it was wealthy, but it was also extremely wicked. Okay? And so if Athens was a center of learning, uh, Corinth was a center of vice. Every type of wickedness, every type of carnality was in Corinth. As a matter of fact, just to drive this point home, the uh, historians tell us that at that time, there was a turn of phrase. They said to, uh, to act the Corinthian or to Corinthianize was the same as adultery or fornication. So if someone was caught up in adultery or fornication, sexual sin, they said they were acting like a Corinthian. Okay? This would be along the same idea or mindset of what we have today um, of uh, calling someone a sodomite. Right? So there is a city associated with a sin. This is what Corinth was. It was a city associated with sexual sin. And this is where Paul was at. Now, we saw that he was not successful in Athens. He was extremely successful in Corinth. What was the difference? See, the people in Corinth were wicked. They were depraved. They were godless in many ways, but they were sin-sick. They had hit bottom, if you will. They had tried everything. They had seen everything, and they were still empty. And so whenever Paul came into Corinth, they were exposed to every sin and every vice. They had drunk it to its full, and yet it never satisfied them. And as Paul came preaching Jesus, preaching a God that loved them so much that he came down and gave his life, a God so powerful that he was able to take it up again, a God that was offering freely and fully to anyone salvation, that was a message that resonated with the Corinthians. And many of the Corinthians became believers. Many of the Corinthians got saved, okay? And so there was a great work that happened in Corinth. See, the thing is, no one can get saved until they realize they're lost. No one can get saved until they realize they're a sinner. And this is one of the great hurdles that we have today in trying to witness, trying to evangelize, is everyone thinks they're okay. Everyone thinks they're doing well. And a lot of times we evangelize in the wrong ways and we evangelize the wrong people because we overlook those who are hurting, those who are broken, those who are rejected, those who are outcast, those who are used up and have nothing to offer, when in fact those are the ones who are looking for hope, who are looking for light. I've said this before, but uh, in the years that I spent in prison ministry, this was something that was always amazing to me because you didn't have to convince those guys that they sinned. I mean, you can tell them openly to their face that they were sinners. And they're like, yeah, I know. I've, I've got the record to prove it. <laughs> but what they need to know is that in spite of all the wickedness that they did, that God still loved them. Right. That's what they needed to know. Right. Okay? The people of Athens said, hey, we are great. We are as gods. We, we know good and evil, right? But whenever he came down to Corinth, they're like, yeah, this place is a mess. We're a mess. We've tried everything. We did it all. None of it satisfies us we need help if we continue in the way that we're going yes we deserve help and paul says hey that's great it's great that you realize this because guess what jesus came to pay your debt he came to pay for your sins 
And this is where they had to come to. And the people at Corinth came to Christ by droves. Yeah. Okay? And so to, to look at it from that perspective, it gives us greater insight into, for instance, the book of Corinthians. Right? Yeah. It gives us greater insight into what we're going to see here in just a minute, that why this was so offensive to the Jews. Okay? But whenever we look in the book of Corinthians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, they're known as being the carnal church. They had problems. Uh, one of the things that we find early in 1 Corinthians is that there was a man within the Corinthian church who had uh, taken his stepmother, yeah, taken his father's wife, his stepmother, and was now together with his stepmother. And the people in the church was like, oh, look at how how tolerable we are. Look at how how uh, open-minded we are. We just accept them in and we just love them like they are. And Paul says, hold on for a second. That is wicked, right? See, the people of Corinth had a long way to go uh, from where Christ found them to where he wanted them to be. And it was going to take time. Paul confronted that and says, hey, you can't be welcoming these things in and acting like they're okay. Yes, you love people, but you can't condone the wickedness that they're in. God wants to bring them out of it. He doesn't just want to save them uh, for heaven. He wants to deliver them from the wickedness that will destroy them on this earth. Okay? And so this is what we're seeing in the book of uh, 1 and 2 Corinthians. This is whenever you see them extremely carnal and fleshly. They're they're showing up for... uh, the Lord's Supper, and they're getting drunk. Y'all remember that in there? Okay. This is the type of things that was going on in Corinth. And we look at it and we say, oh, that's that's just horrible. These guys were wicked. They were awful. Look at the mess they were in. Look at the mess they came out of. Yeah. See, we don't like to engage in that kind of work and that kind of ministry. We want the clean ones. We want the nice ones. We want the ones that's got it all together. Right? Those aren't the ones that Christ came to seek and to save. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Mm-hmm. He says, I didn't come to clean up the clean. I came to clean up the dirty. Right. And we miss out whenever we're not willing to go down into Corinth and to show love and compassion and patience to the broken, to the hurting, to the soiled, the messy. Mm-hmm. And so this is what was going on in Corinth. If Paul would have went to Athens and had a great revival and would have seen many people saved there, they would have been the affluent, the well-educated, the well-learned. They would have been a pretty church from the outside, right? Mm -hmm. They would have been a bunch of whited sepulchers. But instead, Paul comes down to Corinth, sees a ton of people get saved out of the most wicked depravity that was on the earth at that time, and God begins to transform them, not... Immediately, but over time, he cleanses them, he makes a difference in them, and you have the Corinthian church as being one of Paul's probably greatest successes in his ministry, mm-hmm. if you want to look at it that way. Just the fact that they were the mess that they were gave us access to two very, uh, very valuable epistles that he wrote to them, right? We can benefit greatly from the books of First and Second Corinthians because it is written to a bunch of messy people mm-hmm. who are struggling with sin, struggling to break out of those paths, and Paul is still dealing with them and dragging them out of that slowly, patiently, caring as a tender shepherd, seeing them overcome those things. Yeah. 
Okay? And that's what we need to be doing as Christians as well. We need to not be afraid of the Corinthians. We need to not be afraid of ministering to those who are sinful and who are wicked and who are outcast and who are the ones that society rejects and because those are the ones that are going to be the most receptive of the gospel. Yeah. Those are going to be the ones that realize they need him. Okay? And so anyway, uh, whenever we come down to, uh, let's see, verse number 12. Paul's been there a year and six months. Verse 12 of Acts 18. And when uh, Gallio was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuadeth men, excuse me, persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was now about to open his mouth, Gallio said unto the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O ye, Jews, o ye Jews, reason that I I should bear with you, but if it be a question of words and names and of your law, Look ye to it, for I will be no judge over such matters. And he drave them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. And Gallio cared for none of those things. So as we find in this passage, um, Paul's been here for a while. Uh, he's already shook his, the dust off of his his clothes off of his shoes at the synagogue and said, Okay, I'm done with you. I'm going to the Gentiles. Now the Corinthians, the off-scouring of the world according to the Jews, right? What, what chapter? Uh, Acts 18. 18. 18, yes. And so as Paul is there dealing with the Jews and dealing with the Gentiles, and all these Corinthians are getting saved, and their lives are changing, and they're following after Paul, they're following after Christ, the Jews are offended in this. At first, it seems as if um, they're not as bothered by it because, okay, we'll let him go out and mess with the rubbish. Okay, we'll let him go out and mess with them. We'll, we'll stay up here in our synagogue and not be too bothered by it. But Paul was gaining traction. They were growing in numbers. There was lots of people being saved. And then on top of that, even those of the synagogue, even one of the leaders, one of the deputies of the synagogue got saved. And Paul didn't just move excuse me, Paul didn't just move out to the other side of town. Whenever he was thrust out of the synagogue, guess where he went? Next door. Can you think of anything that would have made the rulers of the synagogue more angry? It wasn't just that Paul left the synagogue. He's like, okay, well, I'll just move next door. And so Paul is preaching the gospel next door. The Jews are right here. And all the Gentiles are flocking to Paul next to the synagogue. They're losing some of their key people from the synagogue. They're losing them to Paul next door. And so you see the rabbis and you see the, the devout Jews coming in to the synagogue and they're looking next door and they're seeing Paul with all the riffraff and their former people all coming together right next door. And so what they attempt to do here in this passage that we read is there is a new man that comes in as the the political head, the political leader, governmental leader over the region, Gallio. And by the way, just a side note in um, uh, how specific Luke is and how good of a historian he was, uh, Gallio was an obscure character in history. Okay, 
There's very little known about Gallio. There's not a whole lot of reason to record him except for this, but there is historical record of Gallio in secular history. And from that, we learn that he ruled this area from about 50 to 52 AD. That lets us know when Paul was there. And it also validates what Luke is writing. Okay, that's just a side note. It validates it from secular history. But anyway, so Gallio comes and they say, hey, Gallio, we know that you want to keep us happy in this region and you want to stave off any trouble. We just want to inform you about Paul. Now, we know he's a Jew, but the things that he is teaching doesn't line up with Judaism. And so we need you to do something about him. What they are trying to get done is within the Roman government, there was recognized religions. Okay, The Roman government would recognize certain religions, and Judaism was one of the recognized religions. But any errant religions, any kind of uh, men bringing up their own religious orders and uh, cults and things like that, they were disallowed by the government. So what the Jews are attempting to do here is set a difference, a division between themselves and Paul. They're saying he is not consistent with our doctrine, with our orthodoxy. And so he is not a Jew. Christianity is not a Jewish sect. It is a different religion altogether. It is not sanctioned by the Roman government. They are out of order, if you will. And so because of that, they need to be shut down. They need to be canceled. This is what the Jews are attempting to do here. They're attempting to show a difference, a division, and say Christianity is not Jewish. And it's not, but this was their way of getting the government to persecute Paul. But remember what God had told Paul earlier? He said, don't be afraid. They can't do anything to you until you're finished here. Right? And so it says in verse number 14, Paul was about to open his mouth in his defense. And just as he was opening his mouth, Gallio said, I don't want to hear it. You Jews are always causing trouble. You're always squabbling back and forth. You've got uh, this group versus this group, the school of uh, Hillel versus the school of Shammai. And you've got the Hellenist Jews versus the Orthodox Jews. And you've got, you guys are always fighting and bickering amongst each other. If it was a matter of lewdness, if it was a matter of, uh, of some sort of a, a threat to peace and to tranquility in my province, I would listen to it. But if you all are just squabbling, you go take care of it yourselves. And it seems that the Jews tried to uh, tried to argue with Gallio, and it says that they were drove from the courts. They were drove from his presence. So basically, he summed, summons his guards, his lictors is what they would have been referred to. He summons them to come with their whips and run the Jews out of his presence because they wouldn't shut up. Okay? And the Greeks see this happening. The Jews have been over there brooding and fussing and causing problems. And Paul is preaching and telling about the love of Jesus and seeing people saved and seeing lives transformed. And the Jews are angry about it. And whenever they are expelled from the courts with force and with violence, the Greeks say, hey, here's our chance. Anti-Semitism has always been a thing, right? Here's our chance. And they jumped on the mob and they beat them up. Specifically, they beat up Sosthenes because he was one of the rulers. He was apparently one of the ones that brought him here. And they beat him up, and Gallio just basically turned his head the other way and says, ah, let them do their thing. They let him, he, he let them beat him up. 
Okay? Which apparently be some sense into him because we read later on in Paul's writings that Sosthenes became a brother. He got saved. Okay? So he got beat before he got saved. Is that after? Okay? And so anyway, he got saved as a result of this. And later on, Paul's writing letters and different things, writing letters back to Corinth, and he is speaking to Sosthenes. He's greeting him in his letters. He's like, hey, glad he came along. And so all of this happens here. And finally, in the end of this, we find in verse 18, Paul, after he tarried there yet a good while, and then took leave of the brethren and sailed thence to Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in uh, Centria, for he had a vow, and he came to Ephesus. This is his next stop. So he spent close to two years in Corinth. He got to know Aquila and Priscilla really well. They were great blessings to him, and whenever uh, he went to travel to the next place, they didn't have any roots in Corinth. They were just there because they had been ran out of Rome. And so he says, hey, I'm going to the next place. And they said, well, we're going with you. And so they go with him to Ephesus. Now we're going to find out next week, Lord willing, that whenever they get to Ephesus, there is an open door there, but Paul is uh, on a mission, if you will. He's going onward. And so he leaves a place of opportunity, leaves Aquila and Priscilla behind, and he goes on to Jerusalem into Antioch. Okay? And so we'll see that next week. But... Um, Just a couple thoughts as I close here. As we look at this passage, as Paul is uh, working in Corinth, as he's ministering in Corinth, uh, we find the importance that he placed upon other people in his life. Uh, there's the, the old adage, no man is an island, and Paul was the same. We look at him and we think, man, he was, man, he was strong, man, he was zealous, he was a great... Uh, uh, a great minister of God, he was an apostle, for heaven's sake, right? But Paul, even in all that he was doing, there were so many other people that was in his life, part of his ministry, who was helping along, who was doing all of these things. And we need to make sure in our own lives that we have people who, uh, the Bible says iron sharpens iron. We need some iron in our lives. And I'm afraid that too often, especially in such a... Um, uh, in such a country as Ireland, where we're so much in the minority, that there is an iron deficiency. Right? An iron deficiency. We don't have a whole lot of people that is going to strengthen us, it's going to sharpen us, it's going to help us, right? And so these seem to be um, intentional relationships that was uh, formed in different things. I didn't get as far as I wanted to in looking a little bit more into Aquila and Priscilla, and then later on into Apollos. But what we find throughout Scripture is God is constantly connecting people. Connecting people from all different backgrounds, all different abilities, uh, different personalities, different all these different things he's working, uh, and God is orchestrating this. Uh, even our church is a, an illustration of this. We come from all different places. And of all places, first end up in Longford, Ireland. From all the different backgrounds. And he does this, and he brings us to this place where we're able to minister to one another and that we are to minister for him. We look at all the different people that is recorded in uh, the book of Acts uh, surrounding Paul's ministry. And we can get hung up on Paul. He seems to be the central character, right? We can get hung up on him and think as if we're supposed to be like Paul. But look at all the other people that God is using 
and their different abilities, their different talents, uh, the things that they contribute, the things that they do. Even just as one last little note here with Aquila and Priscilla, something interesting to me with them is have you noticed that most of the time throughout Acts that Priscilla is seemingly the 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 main one out of the couple? You ever notice that in the book of Acts? At first they're introduced as Aquila and Priscilla, and then it changes and it starts being Priscilla and Aquila. Are you all with me? It does matter. Yes. Okay, it does matter because uh, just the, the language that the Bible was written in, uh, the order of words gives emphasis. Okay, the way that it's written. Uh, the Bible tells us that every word of God is inspired. It's there for a reason. And the reason I'm bringing this out is with Aquila and Priscilla, we find that Priscilla tends to be uh, the one that we would think, especially in Bible days, that she would be the one that would have been of less significance and one of less importance, right? But like we find even with many couples today, uh, there will be one that is more outspoken, one that is uh, maybe more outgoing, and then the other one may be a more reserved personality, right? You see these things going on. And I know even with me and my wife, she is the talker. That might be hard for you to believe because I'm always the one up here talking, right? I use all my words on Sunday. Rest of the week, no, I'm done, okay? But anyway, uh, you see these things going on, but with the, what I'm bringing up with Aquila and Priscilla, just as an example, is Aquila seems to be a the strong, silent, hardworking guy that is building the tents, that he is there for his family, he's doing all these things, his wife is alongside of him, but it seems like she is the more outspoken of the two. Whenever we come down to verse 24 and following, we find that whenever they come into contact with Apollos, who is it that is recorded as speaking with Apollos? Is it Aquila? I think, I think I'm not actually, not that you are raising this issue. It mm-hmm. has not no, done on me that way, but then you are making a valid point. If mm-hmm. I relate to, to marital issues, in our contemporary world, mm-hmm. I would say it is true relatively. Uh, the Bible says two is better than one. Mm-hmm. I had to see a situation where you have a man and a woman on equal pedestal. Mm-hmm. It's either the woman is stronger than the man mm-hmm. or vice versa. But overall, it balances a healthy union. Mm-hmm. As long as there's mutual coexistence mm-hmm. between the man and the woman. Mm-hmm. In our contemporary world, we have seen rampant issues of divorce. Mm-hmm. In, not in Africa, in Europe, in all the continents of the world. Mm-hmm. It's not peculiar to one region. It is universal. Mm-hmm. And the main purpose of divorce is because there's no mutual understanding, mm-hmm. no mutual agreement, the division is either the man will not want to succumb to the woman dictates, or the woman will not want to submit to the man dictates. Mm-hmm. And what is lacking is that the ingredient of Christian marriage is mm-hmm. lacking. Mm-hmm. So we sing in Barcelona, 
God give us a Christian home. Mm-hmm. Okay. He don't only eat time. Okay, let me clarify something. Where the father and mother coexist. Yeah. Okay. Let me clarify something. The point in all of this that I'm saying, it's not about marriage. Okay. The point in what I'm saying in all of this is about the diversity amongst believers in the work of God. Okay. I use uh, a married couple as an example, but with the two of them, there was a diversity between them. Okay. What I'm saying is everyone has different talents, different giftings, different abilities. The Bible tells us that every person at the moment of salvation is uh, gifted with spiritual gifts to edify the body. Okay. And so uh, everything you're saying is valid points about marriage, but our, our, our purpose, our point, and what we're looking at here is a lot of times we look at Apostle Paul and we try to think, okay, I'm failing. We're measuring ourselves, comparing ourselves with Apostle Paul as if he is the, the one that we are to emulate, that we're supposed to be like Paul. Okay, And the point that I'm making is throughout all the book of Acts, there are so many other people, so many different characters that are diverse, that have different purposes, that have different skills, different abilities, and play a different part in the work of God. And all of it goes together. Uh, the, Paul later, he illustrates this with the illustration of a body, right? That we are the body of Christ and that every part of the body has a different purpose. All of them are necessary. Okay, And so with Aquila and Priscilla, one has a stronger personality, is more outspoken, more verbal. The other one is the more of the, the rock. He's there working along. You have people like um, Paul. He is the one that can come in, stir things up, get things done. But then if he stays there too long, the pot boils over. Problems, call, or problems are caused, right? And so he comes away. He leaves men like Timothy behind to disciple and to continue to teach and to instruct and to help along, right? You have people like Barnabas. He was the one that uh, was the son of consolation. He was comforting different ones. You find Luke, he's pretty well silent through all of this, but he's the one that recorded all of it. Luke is the one, I don't know that he necessarily had a speaking part in the play, just as an example, okay? He doesn't seem to have had a speaking part. He wasn't there doing all the, but he was the one that was keeping the records, He was the one that was observing everything. He was the one writing it all down. And later on, he gives us the book of Acts. He gives us the book of Luke. Okay? And so what I'm saying is for us as believers, each and every single one of us are going to have a different part to play in the work that God has. Not everyone is going to be outspoken like Paul. Not everyone's going to be able to come in and uh, stand toe-to-toe with the most fierce of enemies and to be able to overcome these things. Some of them are going to be Timothy that quietly sets along beside of people and walks them through and disciples them and helps them out. Some of them are going to be Aquila and Priscilla that are working, plying their hand to their trade, faithful at their job, and taking the opportunities when they come across people to share the gospel and to encourage them, to help out uh, whenever Paul comes throughout town to help him in his ministry. And they, Everyone's going to have a different purpose, right? Does that make it more clear what I'm what I'm getting at here? It does, it does. But then, mm-hmm. then, based on that, if I have been asked a question in a body of Christ as it is, how do we now recognize our different gifts? Okay. Make it and use it to go to church. Okay. Well, one thing with that is um, we don't necessarily need to recognize 
our different gifts as far as like a comparison. Like, okay, well, you have this gift and I have this gift and they have this gift. I need to recognize my gifts. I need to make sure I'm plugged in. I need to worry about myself, okay, as individual believers because too often we are comparing and trying to figure out where everyone else fits in and we're trying to manage what God and His Holy Spirit is supposed to do. It is up to Him to build the church. But as far as me, I need to look at it and say, okay, what skills, what abilities, what desires can be part of it? Am I able to do? What can I contribute? And you're looking for opportunities. And here's the thing. If you are serving the Lord, if you are seeking after Him, if you're walking with God, God will place you in His body where He sees fit. And that's what it tells us in Scripture. And this is the idea behind this, that we need to be willing to be used. We need to be desiring to serve. We need to be seeking after God. And all of a sudden, we're going to find where we fit. Okay? And it's not necessarily something that we're going to struggle and stress about so much as where God is going to order our steps and put us there. Okay? For instance, if you would have, and I've said this many times, if you would have told me 10 years ago that I was going to be in Ireland and that I was going to be preaching, I would have said you were foolish. You were wrong. Right? And if you would have me to outline the steps and the decisions that I made that got me to the place that I am now, I couldn't tell you. Because God opened the doors, God led me along, and I look back and I'm like, I have no idea how I got here, but God did it. Right? And God does the same thing in each and every one of our lives. If we're willing to serve, willing to be used, God opens the doors. You look at the examples that I gave here with Aquila and Priscilla. They were working their job. They were uh, making tents. They loved the Lord, right? And one day Paul showed up. Paul preached the gospel to them. They got saved, or they, maybe they already were. And they said, hey, you know what? We've got this business. We've got spare space at our house. We can allow you to work along with us. We can do all these things. They're going about their business. They run into Apollos later on. They hear what Apollos is preaching, and they're like, there's, there's some holes in his doctrine. He hasn't quite... Uh, he, he's learned about what John the Baptist preached, but he hasn't heard about Jesus yet. Let's fill him in on the rest of it. And they invite him over to the house. They sit down to dinner with him and they say, hey, Paulus, we were listening to your message and um, we just went and let you know there's a few things that you may not be aware of just yet. And so they tell him about Jesus. And he's like, oh man, this is the part I've been looking for. And then he preaches Christ, right? And so we find that God is using us and he is ordering our steps. He's placing us in, in different places according to our talents, our skills, our abilities, our giftings, the things that he has done in our lives. And a lot of times it's going to come more naturally, more organic than what we think if we can get our hearts and our minds on Christ instead of on us or on our expectations or what we think we should be doing. Get it on God. Allow him to lead. Allow him to make us. He told his disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, right? And so just that phrase, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, has stuck with me so much over the years because our part is following. His part is making, right? We want to be the ones making. We want to be the ones figuring it out. We want to be the ones deciding. He says, follow me and I will make you what I want you to be. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He takes care of the rest, Right? So with that, any questions, comments, anything on what we talked about?
Yes, I, I, I just want to comment on the statement you made in the course of this teaching. Uh, <coughs> it's up to God to grow his church. I quite agree. Now, I'm just coming, I'm speaking based on where I'm coming from, right? Mm -hmm. My own local environment in my own country I come from, right? Mm -hmm. We have, for instance, in my local church, mm -hmm. we have different departments. Mm -hmm. Technical, finance, social departments, mm -hmm. prayer bands, and so on and so forth. And toward the end of the year, we we appoint, you know, a committee that are prayerfully led to select officers that will run each department in the coming year. Mm -hmm. And names are submitted prayerfully. Mm -hmm. And it's good that in the course of doing that, you see brethren who are whom you have been able through the gift of God, through God's you know leading, mm -hmm. to observe that this guy will be good in singing, this will be good in ushering, mm -hmm. this will be good as a prayer warrior, mm -hmm. this will be good as a finance, uh, as an auditor or as like mm -hmm. secretary or or things like that. that. I'm thinking based on where I'm coming from because mm -hmm. culture is diverse. Yeah. Is there over there? I think it has helped us in our own environment to grow the church. Mm -hmm. Based on the fact that God grows his church, his office will grow his church, but then mm -hmm. he will not come down physically to grow his church. We mm -hmm. use humans to grow mm -hmm. his church. Yeah. yeah. Humans that are following him. So and yes, there is. We, there... we have to understand that. Yeah. It's up to him to grow his church, but if we use human beings to grow the church. Yeah. Well, and with what you're saying about having a. Uh, a leadership within the church to recognize those things and appoint and whatnot. We find that going on throughout the book of Acts. We find whenever there was the need for the deacons that that the leadership came together and they said, okay, we need to appoint. And we do it. Yeah. yeah, and so those things do happen. But talking about an individual level, uh, we need to be careful not to not to compare and all these different things. But there is going to be a leadership. There's going to be that place where people will recognize and will help to grow and encourage uh, people's talents and abilities. Okay. And so, yeah, that's what you were talking about there. And um, now with where you're coming from, it is much more, much larger, much more complicated, much more advanced. Uh, I think you have the right word. Anyway, organization within the church. Okay. It's not, you know, 25 people coming together, you know. And so, yeah, there, there's going to be a difference in that. But, yeah, there is a place for there to be shepherds that are looking over the flock and determining the the different giftings, talents, abilities, and whatnot, and helping, encouraging, and seeing them get plugged in. Yeah, maybe, maybe I've not gone to many churches in in, a, in a Ireland or, let me say, in Europe. Maybe it's not common in Europe, but I'm just speaking based on my mm -hmm. own environment. And mm -hmm. what we do there is full scripture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it. Mm -hmm. Anything else? Okay, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll take a short break. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We do thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for these uh, uh, thoughts, Lord, that we can, can bring out of this and be encouraged by it. And I just thank you for being so good to us and for loving us. Lord, I ask you to be with our time, our fellowship with one another, Lord, and be with us as we go into the second service. Lord, and all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.